Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, it looks to me like at least those of you who are here managed to survive the New Year's Eve celebrations last night, and you've had the day off to uh, recover so that you can be here tonight ready for a three-hour Bible class. So I just wanted to see if anybody was awake. Well, before we get started, let's have a uh, word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer at first to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here tonight to study your word. We're mindful of the fact that the calendar marks another change in the year. And as we move from the uh, many events and the chaos at times that appeared this last year to a new year, we pray that uh, we might be mindful of the fact that the most important thing in our life is to put you first, put the knowledge of your word first and its application. We know that we can't apply what we don't know and we can't know your word unless we take the time to study it and are disciplined in our day-to-day spiritual life. Father, we pray that as we study tonight that the things that we have been studying will come together for us a little more clearly and that we may come to a greater appreciation of all that has been provided for us in our salvation and its significance for us in terms of our future destiny. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews. We are in Hebrews chapter 9, and I want to take a little bit of time just at the beginning to sort of orient ourselves to where we are in terms of the structure of Hebrews, As I pointed out, and as we've gone over several times, as we've reviewed and gone through Hebrews, is the writer of Hebrews is writing this letter, but it's, it has characteristics that are distinct from a letter, you, that make it not quite a, your typical epistle. It doesn't have an address at the beginning to a specific set of people. It doesn't have a standard uh, epistolary conclusion And there are other elements within it that make it a little more like a, like it was originally a, an address, an oral address, possibly a sermon. Several books in the New Testament have that characteristic. James is one. Uh, I think 1st John also has that characteristic that was initially something that had been, been taught or had been, uh, maybe a, a sermon or a Bible study that had been taught many times by the writer, and now it was put down in writing in the form of a letter and sent to someone, but it still uh, has the characteristics of, a, of an oral address. And so we've seen that with uh, Hebrews, that it has those characteristics, and it will make a point, a teaching point, and where it goes back, where the writer goes back and pulls in various doctrines, various um, 
teachings from the Old Testament, and then he pulls those together and makes an application. And that application is couched in terms of, also in terms of a warning passage. Now, the warning sections in Hebrews are not the extent of the application. So you have what is called the hortatory section, which is just another way of saying an exhortation or challenge. So there's a teaching, and then there's a challenge, and within the challenge there's often a warning uh, to those to whom the writer is uh, is writing, and he's challenging them because they seem to be, uh, based on these warning passages, about to give up on their uh, Christian life and fade back into Judaism. And it seems, from what we can tell from what is covered, that they were former Jewish priests, uh, Levites, who had become believers. And they had left the whole system of Judaism, but now they seem to be questioning what they had done. And so there are these warnings not to give up on their spiritual life, their spiritual growth, because it puts in jeopardy their future position, their future rewards that uh, is, God has in store for us in terms of ruling and reigning in the millennial kingdom. And so that has great application for any believer, whether you come out of a Jewish background or not, that there are all kinds of pressures in life to cause us to think that we have somehow arrived spiritually and that we've learned enough, we know enough, we've been in Bible class enough, we've heard this taught so many times that we think that we've arrived. And it, it has appeared to me over the years that many people have sort of a an invisible ceiling uh, beyond which they will not grow. And that's true for a lot of different things in life. First time somebody uh, explained that to me, I was a uh, I was in seminary, and I was working for a very brief time uh, for an insurance company, and the sales sales manager talked about the fact that you'll have some some salesman who will be satisfied making uh, $20,000 a year. Some will be satisfied making $40,000 a year. Others will be satisfied only if they make eighty or $100,000 a year, and everybody's different, and once they reach what they believe is their monthly quota, then they just sort of fade out and you don't see them doing a whole lot until the next month comes around. And everybody has this, has made these decisions. Some people have consciously thought them out, some people haven't. But I see this again and again in the Christian life where people that were very consistent for a long period of time in their Christian life suddenly you don't see them so much. They're, you think, well, maybe they're listening to tapes, they're listening to uh, MP3s or watching videos, but they just seem to fade out and disappear and sort of coast through the rest of their life on whatever amount of doctrine they learned and that set amount of time thinking, well, that's enough. They understand principles about how to claim a promise. They understand confession of sin. They understand a few of the other dynamics, and they just sort of roll with that. Then there are others who have a little more motivation, and they realize that if they're going to get anywhere in the spiritual life, then they have to be in Bible class on a regular basis, and they have to be reminded of these principles again and again and again. And I think that as we grow and mature as believers, that motivation that we have as a young believer 
will necessarily change as you go through the different stages of spiritual adolescence into spiritual adulthood. From my own experience, I know that when I was a young believer, uh, I was really driven by the, getting the answers to a lot of questions. How do we know the Bible is true? How do we know we can trust it? How do we uh, really come to understand it? What's the Old Testament mean? What, what do all, all this uh, what do all the sacrifices mean? How, do, how does all of that fit into the overall structure uh, of the Bible? And then you get into the New Testament. Well, who were the apostles and what happened to them and why, what did they teach and why did they teach it the way they did? And, and um, those kinds of questions drive you, but at, you reach a certain point in study where you're satisfied with the answers that you've received. And I think that's true for a lot of new believers. They want to know more about God. They want to know about more about salvation. They want to make sure they're, they're uh, secure in their salvation, that they can't sin, they can't lose their salvation. They want to make sure that they understand at least some basic things about uh, prophecy, perhaps. But once they get those questions answered, then their motivation has to shift. And at that point... Motivation is no longer learning or getting the answer to those questions. Maybe you have a new set of questions you want to get the answer to, and so that helps to motivate you. But at another level, you realize that, okay, I've learned the basics. I've got a foundation in terms of my uh, spiritual childhood, but now there's something expected of me. There is a responsibility inherent in being a child of God that drives me in toward a future uh, a future goal, a future position that God has for me. And that's what we call having a personal sense of our eternal destiny, realizing that God saved us for a purpose to serve him not only here in this life, but also to prepare us for a future uh, ministry as priests and kings in the millennial kingdom and then on into eternity. And that each of us as church age believers today have a unique and distinct role within the body of Christ to serve within our, in the framework of our spiritual gifts, but also when we return with the Lord as the bride of Christ during the millennial kingdom. And so everything that we do now begins to affect what happens in the future, so that each decision we make today shapes our future position, our future rewards, our future destiny as priests and kings in the, in the future kingdom. And that is the orientation of the message of Hebrews. So as we have gone through each of these points, we have come to the fourth section, which is the major section in Hebrews. It began back in chapter 7 verse 1, and extends down through the end of chapter 10. And the teaching section, or the doctrinal section, is the section from 7-1 down through 10-18, and then beginning from 10-19 to the end of chapter 10, we have the uh, exhortation section and a warning section that begins in verse 25 down through the end of chapter 39. That's the warning section. And so this has been a lengthy study for us because the, especially as we got into chapter 9, we had to look at a variety of different things related to the tabernacle 
Old Testament background information to just understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying and the basis for his challenge uh, to these Jewish believers. In chapter 7, he began to build his uh, case by focusing on the Melchizedekian priesthood. Chapter 7 deals with the whole issue of priesthood. What kind of priest is Jesus Christ? Is he a Levitical priest? No, he can't be a Levitical priest because he's not from the tribe of Levi, and he doesn't fit the physical requirements in terms of his family lineage or tribal lineage to be a Levitical priest. So if he's not a Levitical priest... What kind of priest is he? Well, we saw in our analysis of that chapter that he is a Melchizedekian priest, a royal priest, and therefore his priesthood is not only oriented to Israel, but is oriented to uh, all human beings. It's not restricted to simply a Levitical priesthood. But that change in priesthood reflects a change in a dispensation, dispensation being a marked-out period of time in the administration, in God's administration of human history. And so the writer of Hebrews states in chapter 7 that when there is a uh, change of priesthood, there is necessarily a change of covenant. And also, as you go through chapter 7, we were introduced to key words that were used and mentioned several times, and one of the most important being the word covenant. But in comparison to covenant, often in the same context, there's also an emphasis on promise leading up to the statement in verse 6 of chapter 8. But now he, that is Jesus Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. And immediately following that, there's a lengthy quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33, which is the key passage on the new covenant. Now, we spent a lot of time last winter, last January, February, right before the Chafer Conference, dealing with all the passages on the new covenant. That seems like, golly, that was a year ago. We're, we're only in the middle of chapter 9. We haven't gone very far very fast. But this is some extremely significant material, and I don't know whether you realize it or not, but I'm you know, putting my plow into uh, unplowed ground in a lot of this. And uh, this last week I had a couple of very... Uh, fun, engaging, challenging conversations with uh, Dr. Um, John Whitcomb. Those of you who've been to the pre-trip conference a couple of times or have uh, been exposed to Dr. Whitcomb, he is sort of the um, uh, patriarch of dispensational theology today and creationism because others such as Dr. John Walbert and Dr. Henry Morris have gone to be with the Lord. In the early 60s, Whitcomb's name really became known among evangelicals because he co-authored a book called The Genesis Flood with uh, Henry Morris. And it was that book that really changed the focus and the direction of a lot of evangelicalism with respect to creationism and understanding, understanding origins. 
And out of the impact of that book, we had the development of various creationist ministries, including the establishment of the Institute for Creation Research, of which uh, Dr. Henry Morris was the head. And then you had the development later in the 90s of Answers in Genesis and several other smaller uh, creationist ministries came up along the way. But what really started all of that was this book that John Whitcomb and Henry Morris wrote, um, back in the early 60s, and, and it really had an impact in evangelicalism. And it wasn't a, a, an accepted or it did not find a friendly reception. So that in 1968, a young seminary student finishing up his master's in theology uh, by the name of Charlie Clough wrote his master's thesis called A Calm Appraisal of the Genesis Flood. And what Charlie did in his master's thesis was he not only had, he had had known Henry Morris for some years and had uh, dialogued with him a good bit, and he got to know both he and Dr. Whitcomb better, but he was looking at the response that that book generated at the seminary level, level uh, at the seminary level, and especially among the so-called scholars, your Old Testament department scholars and others. Dr. Whitcomb was the head of the Old Testament department, Hebrew and Old Testament department, at Grace Theological Seminary up in Winona Lake, uh, Indiana. So he's very well qualified. He has a, both men have uh, fascinating uh, testimonies and uh, background. Uh, Dr. Morris was actually here in Houston and taught at Rice, went to Baraka Church back in the 49, 50, somewhere in there, before he went to Virginia Polytechnic uh, in, um, in Virginia. Uh, Dr. Whitcomb, I believe he, he, he was saved at, when he was a student at Princeton. And it's just fascinating to see how God worked in their uh, in their lives. But Dr. Whitcomb has presented a couple of papers the last two years at pre-trib. One last year had to do with the uh, role of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, which is a timely topic for us on Sunday morning as we're getting into our study on Revelation 11. And then this year he presented a paper on the sacrifices in the Millennial Temple based on the passages in Ezekiel chapters 40 and following. In his paper on the two witnesses that he presented last year, he was talking about uh, some things related to the Tribulation Temple that, as I went back and reread it uh, last week, caused my antenna to vibrate a little bit because he was raising some issues that um, I wasn't really clear about. And the primary issue, and somebody, a couple of people around here have asked me about this in the last two or three months, related to the legitimacy of the temple in the tribulation. Now, that's a really interesting question. And as I was reading Dr. Whitcomb's paper, he argued for and stated and had various passages that he went to, uh, uh, taking the position that it was a legitimate Worship in the tribulation period. This is not an apostate temple, which is what I've taught in the past and what I've heard in the past. So I read through the paper a couple of weeks ago or last week, and 
when I hit stuff like that, I usually pick up the phone and call call Tommy and say, what do you think about this? I've always heard the tribulation temple called an apostate temple. He said, well, I have too. You need to email Dr. Whitcomb and find out, you know, what his rationale is behind this. So that's generated several uh, conversations. But what's interesting is this is an area that really hasn't been uh, explored very well because there are passages that clearly indicate that the temple that is established in the tribulation is not viewed scripturally as an apostate temple. If it's apostate or or idolatrous, then how can the Antichrist uh, desolate, desecrate the tribulation temple? So it has to have some level of legitimacy. Hmm. Okay, but they're having sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices are they? Are they Levitical sacrifices or are they New Covenant sacrifices? Well, we studied the New Covenant last year and saw that the New Covenant doesn't get established. The foundation was at the cross. The, the, the sacrifice, the offering that, that uh, uh, undergirds the New Covenant was at the cross. But the New Covenant doesn't go into effect until the Second Coming. And as we looked at all those passages, if you remember, we saw that there were various things that were always present when the New Covenant went into effect, that there is a Davidic king on the throne in Jerusalem, that Israel is a regenerate people, that they are reunited in the land. All of those things are part of what is present when God inaugurates and brings into effect the new covenant. So how can these sacrifices in the tribulation temple be new covenant? I don't know the answer to that yet. I had a three-minute message on my answering machine yesterday from Dr. Whitcomb because I'd raised the question with him the day before, and he... uh, answered it, and raised more questions. And the point I'm making is it's interesting how a lot of this is sort of coming together in the various studies we have going with Hebrews on, on Thursday night and Kings, because we've gone through a lot of different um, doctrines and Kings related to the temple and sacrifices, things like that. But one of the things that Dr. Whitcomb did in his paper on the uh, uh, millennial sacrifices, that he didn't he didn't bring it out to quite the degree that I have, and I ran my what I teach on it past him the other day, and he agreed and uh, thought thought that was right. He didn't state it quite as clearly as I have, and that is that to understand that there's a difference, a difference between the ritual slash uh, ceremonial sacrifices in the temple and real spirituality. Now, this is something that is not made very clear uh, by anyone. And I began to clarify this about nine years ago. I wrote a series of articles for the Chafer Theological Journal really dealing with the whole issue of confession of sin and its relationship to cleansing because the real issue in 1 John 1, 9 isn't confession because some people kind of when they come to 1 John 1, 9, they'll say, well, that's the only place in the New Testament that says to confess your sins. It doesn't use that word anywhere else. 
But if you read 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that word cleansing is the key word, not confession. Confession is what gets you the cleansing, but the word that you follow and trace all the way through Scripture is really that word cleansing, that there is a necessity to being cleansed before we come into the presence of a righteous, just God. And that cleansing we teach in two ways is a positional cleansing, which is what happens uh, for church-age believers at the moment of salvation when we're identified with Christ through the baptism uh, of the Holy Spirit and we're placed in Christ. There's a positional cleansing. But then when we sin, as we go through life, there is the need for an experiential, uh, experiential cleansing. Now, hold that thought. That word cleansing there, that was the first time I realized that the Septuagint in the Old Testament translated atonement, the Hebrew word kafar translated atonement, that many times the, the rabbis who translated the Septuagint translated that with the word katharizo, uh, meaning to cleanse. So that, that was just like taking, you know, another layer of blinders off of my eyes as I began to put, kind of put that together, realizing that you have to have a, you have to have cleansing in that sense, uh, in the future millennial temple because you have millennial priests who are born in the millennium in mortal bodies with sin natures. And so in the ritual sacrifices in the, in the millennial temple, they still have to go through ritual cleansing. But ritual cleansing isn't the same as, as real cleansing. So that when you're out, let's say you're David and you're out in the fields as a shepherd and you sin, does that mean you have to run back to uh, the, the te- temple, or with David it would have been the tabernacle, and offer a sin offering and burn offering to get back in fellowship? That would be real spiritual life, and then on your way back to the sheep, uh, something happens and you sin again. Now you have to oh, stop and turn around and run back. You probably, I don't know about you, but I would never make it back to the sheep. They would starve to death and get lost and die in the wilderness. So there's this difference between real spirituality in terms of real ongoing fellowship with God between the individual and God and what is depicted in the ritual and ceremony in the temple. Now, that's really important to help resolve some of these uh, things that we're going to get into in, in working out some of the kinks as we get into not only Hebrews chapter 10, but also when we get into looking at the issues related to the legitimacy of the tribulation temple. And the sacrifices there, are those Levitical sacrifices or are they New Covenant sacrifices? Now, at this point, my inclination is to say they're still Levitical sacrifices in the same way that you had Levitical sacrifices going on between 33 A.D., when Jesus dies on the cross, and he's the end of the law, and remember, all the sacrifices are all pointing to the cross, And we have a tendency to think, well, the moment he died on the cross, from that point on, these sacrifices became illegitimate. Did they? Paul doesn't seem to ever say that. 
And Paul wrote a lot about this in Galatians and in Romans, and then he takes this, uh, swears this vow to go to Jerusalem, goes to Jerusalem and offers sacrifices. But he doesn't see that to be a conflict with the finished work of Christ on the cross. The only way, Dr. Whitcomb and I talked about this the other day, the only way we can see that that would work is if Paul understands this difference between real spirituality and what is depicted in the ritual. Only when you have that, that kind of distinction can you see Paul, do, Paul doing that. Now, now that's, that's, I've gone into all of that in terms of this review because as we went through Hebrews 7, we talk about this change of priesthood. Uh, Jesus Christ is our high priest. That's related to the change of covenant, which is the new covenant, but we saw that that's not put into effect until the second coming. And then starting in chapter 9, we get into an analysis, an analogy related to the Day of Atonement ritual in the Old Testament. And so in the last classes, last few classes, I have focused on three key doctrines, three key doctrines that we must understand to understand Hebrews 9 and 10. The first was the procedures on the Day of Atonement. The second is the nature of redemption the nature of redemption. And the third is that the purchase price is blood. So that's really the last three lessons. So I just want to summarize that very quickly before we get into the present, present passage. The first is, related to the Day of Atonement, we saw that there were certain procedures that had to take place on the Day of Atonement. That the, uh, We went into all the detail looking at everything in Leviticus ch- chapter 16, but when you boil it down... Uh, there were three things. Now, before we get into that, we have to understand the meaning of the word. Uh, the word atonement, and I pointed out four things. First of all, that atonement comes from the English phrase at one which emphasizes reconciliation. There really isn't a direct translation of kafar to atonement. It was a coined word in English. But the idea that they saw, the early English translators saw, and they coined this word, was that idea of God and man being able to come together um, and man being reconciled to God. Second aspect that we see is that the blood sacrifice relates to the substitutionary idea and the payment of a price which brings in that idea of redemption. It's not just reconciliation, but you also have redemption. Third, the mercy seat depicts the satisfaction or propitiation of God's righteousness and justice. And then fourth, because God is propitiated and the penalty is truly, actually, objectively paid for sin, the debt of sin is canceled for all mankind. And that is called expiation and forgiveness, the canceling of the debt, the, the certificate of debt against us, was nailed to the cross historically. That occurred 2,000 years ago. So that led us to understand that atonement was a multifaceted concept that relates to all these different aspects of Christ's work on the cross, redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, expiation, and propitiation. So we can put that, I developed this little diagram here of a pentagon with kafar in the middle and then each side represents one of these different doctrines. And depending on the passage that you're in and the context, the writer may be emphasizing 
uh, one or another of these doctrines. But the word kafar is broad enough to incorporate all of these dimensions of Christ's work on the cross. Now, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, the high priest first would go in and he would offer a sin offering for himself and his family and bring that blood in before the uh, before the mercy seat because before he can minister on behalf of the people, there has to be ceremonial cleansing for himself and for his family, his family being a reference to the Levites, the other priests. Second thing that we saw was that he comes in and he come, returns again into the Holy of Holies and brings blood from the, uh, from the bull, and he puts that on the mercy seat, one drop on the mercy seat, seven uh, drops in front of the mercy seat, and that depicts propitiation, which really isn't developed as a doctrine until you get into the New Testament, but that's what that is a picture of. So the splattering of the blood on the mercy seat depicts propitiation. And then the third thing that happened was that he went out and he put, put his hand on two goats, uh, recited the sins of the nation since the last day of atonement, and he would then sacrifice one goat indicating the need for the shedding of blood to deal with those sins, and then the other goat was left alive, and a trusted friend, someone who wouldn't be lazy, would take the, um, that goat off into the wilderness and would let it go somewhere where it wouldn't come back. And what that depicts is that there is a, a, a finality to the payment for sin. Those sins aren't going to come back. They're not going to have to be atoned for again. They won't have to be cleansed. Those sins will not have to have a second Cleansing, it is a complete and total payment for those sins. Now, it is not a permanent payment because every year they had to do this. It just covered the sins since the previous Day of Atonement. So it is not a permanent payment. That's why you have the verses we'll get to in this section that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins permanently. But they did have a real effect. There was real forgiveness and there was real cleansing, but it was only for a short period of time, only for that year. So we move from understanding that to connecting that to the concept of redemption, which comes up in the New Testament, Colossians 1, 13 through 20. The key verse there was verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the in whom referring to Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Two points I've emphasized. One is the payment price, which is blood. Second, the forgiveness of sins is appositional to the, to the uh, noun for redemption. And that means that redemption is equated to forgiveness. And we had to clarify the meaning there because forgiveness to many of us just means that we're not going to hold something against somebody. We're not going to be angry with them. We're not going to be bitter or hateful towards them. But the idea here is more the idea used in, econo- in an economic sense, the wiping out or canceling of a debt. And there's a different sense there. And the canceling of a debt is more of an objective and not a subjective uh, reality. Furthermore, in those verses we saw in Colossians 1.20 that this redemption, this act of um, forgiveness that's accomplished at the cross 
is related to the doctrine of reconciliation, which occurred at the cross, not a subjective thing, but an objective accomplishment by Christ's death. Again, peace was made through the blood of his cross, the payment price being blood. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, again, emphasizes the doctrine of reconciliation. Then we went into Colossians 2, 13 and 14, where we had the connection made between forgiveness here and the idea of canceling or wiping out a debt. And it needs to be understood correctly that you have your main uh, main verb is in verse 13. He has made alive together with him. Understand the yes. He has made us alive together with him. And everything else modifies or relates to that main idea. And it should be understood in this way. And you, although you were dead in your trespasses and sins, it's a uh, concessive participle there, concessive adverbial participle. Although you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made uh, you, continue the second person plural there, he has made you alive together with him. And then the participle just translated as having forgiven you all trespasses, but I think that when that is uh, properly understood, it should be understood as a causal participle. Be- he has made you alive because he has forgiven you all trespasses. The reason he can make us alive is because he had forgiven you of all trespasses. Now, if that's all there was, we would think that that happened when we were saved. But he doesn't stop there. He continues into verse 14 saying, having, and again it's an aorist participle, past tense, having wiped out. Now that's a participle, so it's not just having. It would have the idea, it could be a temporal participle, meaning when he wiped out the handwriting of requirements, or it could be a participle of means. He, Because he has forgiven you all trespasses uh, by wiping out the handwriting of of requirements that was against us. Either way, the forgiveness is a result of wiping out or eradicating the uh, the certificate of debt uh, that was against us, which was contrary to us. And we're told when it happened in the second part of verse 14, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So that's when it happened. It didn't happen when you trusted Christ as your Savior. It happened at the cross. So what we must conclude from this, and I've wrestled a little bit with the terminology here, is that there is a dual sense to forgiveness. There is an objective sense and a subjective sense. And the objective redemption is paid at the cross. The price is paid objectively. There is, a, it's not positional, it's not experiential. Don't confuse those two. I'm going to develop three categories, objective, positional, experiential. Positional, experiential only apply to the believer. The objective has to do with the fact that Christ truly paid the penalty for every sin of every person who ever lived on, on the planet, so that sin is not the issue anymore. It is objectively paid for. The Father is propitiated, and mankind is reconciled to God. It is an objective reality. And it happened at the cross so that the certificate of debt is wiped out. So sin isn't the issue anymore. The issue is whether or not we uh, human beings trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
So the cancellation of the debt is viewed in this passage in terms of its objective cancellation in relation to the satisfaction of divine justice. Then, when we talk about it subjectively, there are two aspects. And subjectively, the two aspects are positional and experiential. We are positionally forgiven when we are in Christ. And then when we sin, of course, we're out of fellowship. That has to do with experiential. So experiential forgiveness comes when we can confess our sins. Now, when we look at the passage in Hebrew, that we're studying in Hebrews chapter 9, just to uh, tie this together for you, in verse 12, we're not quite there yet, but we should be next time, which, of course, unfortunately will be when I come back from Kiev. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place, that is, the heavenly most holy place, once for all, what? What's that next phrase? Having, past tense, having obtained eternal redemption. See, that's the objective sense. doesn't mean everybody is saved. It just means that the price is paid for objectively, which satisfies the righteous demands of God so that his righteousness and justice are propitiated. And the, uh, we can be forgiven in the sense of all mankind is forgiven in the sense that the sin debt is canceled, wiped out, so that that is not the issue. Then the third thing we looked at in the past few weeks was the purchase price, which is blood, so that in the Old Testament, blood depicts life, and the shedding of blood equals the loss of life. So this is a figure of speech that runs throughout uh, the Scripture. First uh, Peter 1, uh, 2 says that, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. That is that sanctifying uh, imagery there. But it has to do with the application of his death to the individual believer. Uh, Romans 3.25 and Romans 5.9 both talk about the fact that, that God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation by means of his blood. When did that occur? That occurred at the cross. That was that objective thing that God did. He just he he's satisfied at the cross, and it's through faith. Uh, Romans five nine much more than having now been justified by his blood. So all these phrases pick up on the price that is paid, which is termed blood, but actually this speaks of his death, redemption. First Peter one eighteen and nineteen is with his precious blood. We saw this as a figure of speech. And this was very complicated last time. I tried to simplify it here. There's two ways in which this is used. It's called a metalepsis, which combines two figures of speech, a metonymy and a synecdoche. The metonymy is a figure of speech where one noun is used instead of another. One noun that stands in relation to another noun is used. So one noun substitutes for another. That's called a metonymy. A synecdoche is the exchange of one idea for another associated idea. So metonymy has to do with a related noun for noun. Synecdoche is idea for idea. And then E.W. Bullinger 
in his classic work on figures of speech, states that in the New Testament, the expression, the blood of Christ, is the figure metalepsis, because first the blood is put by synecdoche. Now remember, synecdoche is a related idea. So blood is put for blood shedding. So it's a related idea or death, we would say, physically, physical death. So blood is put for physical death. Those are related ideas. And then he goes on to say that the death of Christ is distinct from his life, and so he's talking physical. Then his physical death is put for the perfect satisfaction made by it, and I've inserted that means that physical death is put for spiritual death. Now, death for death. See, those are related nouns, so that's a metonymy. Now, you've got two figures of speech, one piled on top of another, and that's what makes it a metalepsis. So that's all the technical terms, so now you can impress somebody with how much you know. But we, we use these kinds of figures of speech in everyday language. Nobody ever told us what we're doing. We just normally understand them when we hear somebody uh, use them so that it's just a basic sense of, what, of the fact that um, the phrase blood, shed blood, means physical death. So that brings us up to verse 6, our next paragraph, Hebrews 9, 6. Now, having laid this foundation, we can work our way through these verses fairly quickly because we have an understanding now of all this background. So in verse 6, we read, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the now there represents a uh, particle, a conjunction in the Greek, which indicates a change to the next, to a, the next topic, a shift to a new topic. In verses 1 through 5, he talked about the furniture and arrangement of the furniture inside the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. And verse 6 through 10, he's going to talk about their function. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, that these things referred to all the articles of furniture in the tabernacle and when it became uh, functional. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. And there's a contrast between the everyday priest and the high priest. That's the significance in verses 6 and 7 that the high priest, I mean, the priest went in every day, but they only went into the Holy of Holies, but the high priest only goes in only goes in once a year for the Day of Atonement. The focus in this whole chapter is on the Day of Atonement. So in verse 7 we read, but into the second part, uh, only the high priest went once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins. The once a year doesn't mean that's the only time he could have gone in because we, we saw the problem with the... Uh, uh, location of the altar of incense. I suggested it was actually inside the Holy of Holies during the tabernacle period, and so the high priest could go in for other reasons at other times, but only once a year for the Day of Atonement. But into the second part, the high priest, only the high priest once a year, not without blood. The use of the double negative there uh, brings it to our attention that his entry on the Day of Atonement was on the basis of blood, which he offered first for himself. We saw that already. The first thing he had to do was offer the sin offering for himself and his family and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. And when we studied the Day of Atonement, we saw that the the sacrifices only covered 
ritual, I mean, ritual sins where there was ritual uncleanness because somebody had touched a dead body or they uh, did something that was ritually unclean. A woman would give birth. She would be ritually unclean for seven days or eight days, uh, things like that. They're not sins at all, but they rendered a person just ritually or ceremonially unclean or for sins that were committed in ignorance. They weren't willful sins or what the Old Testament calls sins of the high hand. There were no sacrifices for willful sins. That's covered just by the grace of God. So there's that distinction there. The Day of Atonement only covers uh, these sins, the ritual sins and the sins committed in ignorance. So on the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes in to take care of the unintentional sins of the nation from the last Day of Atonement to the present. It's, it has efficacy. The blood of the bulls and the goats could deal, were efficacious, but only for that short period of time. Now, sometimes when we read these verses, we think that they didn't have any value at all. It was just ritual. No, it had a real value because over and over again, you read in the Psalms, God forgives. He forgave them. He, he was satisfied by that, but it's only a temporary satisfaction. It, can only, it only dealt with that limited period of time. And that we saw that the sacrifices also emphasized the, that God's justice was satisfied and the sin is completely removed by that scapegoat that's taken off into the wilderness so that those sins are never brought up again. It, it's complete, it's full, it's total payment. That is what Jesus emphasized at the end of the day when he died for our sins and he said to Telestai, paid in full, the debts wiped out. It is complete. Nothing more can be done. Verse 8. Now this is an interesting verse because it brings in an important doctrine for us, doctrine of progressive revelation. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. See, what that tells us is that the Holy Spirit made or declared this much at that time. The Greek word is delao, which means to make clear by words, so it emphasizes a propositional, verbal, propositional revelation or to declare something. So the Holy Spirit, as the uh, divine author of Scripture, declared these realities, but it wasn't clear to everyone what they actually pointed to. It's fuzzy. It's a shadow. That terminology will be introduced by the end of chapter 9, that this is just a shadow. So the Holy Spirit introduces this, and this brings in the doctrine of progressive revelation. What is progressive revelation? Well, first of all, Satan always has a counterfeit to biblical truth, and there's a doctrine of progressive revelation at the core of the Baha'i religion, and they have perverted progressive revelation to mean something, mean that everybody can now get to heaven because all these different religions all where God revealed himself differently in different religions. That's not what we mean by progressive revelation. 
The Bible clearly is based on progressive revelation. God didn't hand a completed canon of Scripture to Adam two minutes after he sinned. It took centuries to reveal the, the Scriptures. So the first point is that God did not reveal all of his plan at one time or to one individual. Second Peter 3:15 and 16 is an interesting passage because Peter is talking here about Paul, and in verse 16 he says, "As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand." See, there were things God revealed to Paul that he didn't reveal to Peter, and when Peter read them in Paul, Peter was left scratching his head a lot. He had a tough time understanding all that Paul said. It's progressive revelation. Not all of the apostles understood the whole picture. There were things Paul that were not revealed to Paul that were revealed to Peter and that were revealed to John. So there's a distinction among the apostles, and that's true for the Old Testament uh, as well. In the Old Testament, Daniel had more revealed to him than Jeremiah. Jeremiah had more revealed to him than Isaiah. Isaiah had more revealed to him than Moses. Moses had more revealed to him than Noah. But they all understood what was revealed to them. Now, they may have understood more, but it wasn't included in the Scripture. For example, if you read Genesis 22, which is the story of Abraham taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him, there's no mention there of his understanding the doctrine of resurrection. But when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, we realize that, that uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews knew that Abraham understood that God could raise Isaac from the dead. And if Abraham actually were to kill him, then God would bring him back from the dead and God would do, do so in fulfillment of the promises that God had made to Abraham. Also, in Genesis chapter 3, we just have this uh, creature called the serpent. Now, we've heard it said for all of our lives that the serpent there was the devil, but there's actually an Old Testament a professor at Dallas Seminary that says that, that was just a serpent. See, he's, got, he's a scholar, and I think that what happens when, to some people when they become scholars is that they'll believe anything rather than the truth. And the reason they argue that is because on the base, and this is a perversion of progressive revelation, by the way, is he would say that, see, Adam had no way of knowing that that was the devil. Now, we're just not told that Adam knew that. Adam knew that. We are told in Revelation chapter uh, 12 that the serpent is the, the, the dragon in Revelation 12 is the serpent of old, the devil, the accuser of the brethren. So it's very clear from the totality of Scripture, that the serpent in Genesis 3 is Satan. Just because it's not stated in Genesis 3 doesn't mean Adam was ignorant of that later on and that everybody in the Old Testament was ignorant of that. The only people that are ignorant of that are overtrained academics today who don't understand the realities of progressive revelation. So the second point is that God revealed... Uh, more to some than others. Uh, but not all that, that any one writer knew was written down. Just because they didn't write it down doesn't mean they didn't have some perception. They knew more than what they wrote. 
Third point, some vocabulary developed after the closing of, can- of the canon, which clarifies what's taught in the Scripture in ways that the Old Testament writers and New Testament writers couldn't have understood. We have words like rapture, hypostatic union, trinity, a number of other words that have been developed, dispensations, that have all been enhanced in many ways that they weren't even there in the Scriptures. Or if they were, it's not certain that they were necessarily used in a technical way, but we've taken them and made them technical. And, and develop definitions. The term Trinity isn't coined until the middle of the second century, 200 years after Paul's dead. So we can think about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a way that is more clear and more precise than Paul ever could. That doesn't mean his thinking was wrong. It just means that we have a tighter focus on the doctrine than he did. Fourth point, later scripture, this is important for any kind of hermeneutics or interpretation, later scripture doesn't correct or change earlier scripture. It enhances it and expands it. So when we're reading these things in in Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews is going back to Old Testament passages, he's not changing what they mean or correcting them, but he is bringing out aspects of, Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's bringing out aspects and dimensions of those passages that may not have and probably weren't that clear to the original author. But he can do it because of the Holy Spirit. I can't do it, you can't do it, because you don't have that kind of inspiration ministry of the Holy Spirit, but the writers of the New Testament can do it. Fifth point, we must be careful not to read later revelation back into earlier revelation. This is a problem with covenant theology. Covenant theology thinks that you have to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. See, we would say you have to read the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. See, they get it backwards. And they're always finding uh, New Testament doctrines in the Old Testament that aren't really there and never would have occurred to the original writer, and you couldn't get them from doing normal exegesis of the passage in its original context. So we have to be careful not to read later doctrine, later revelation back into earlier revelation in a way to justify uh, making them, that is, Old Testament writers, know more or know it in a way that changed the original meaning or the context. Sixth, writers in an earlier era may have understood more than what they wrote. They may have understood, as I pointed out earlier, they may have understood more of what they wrote, but they probably did not have the clarity which came from later revelation. So it's fuzzy. It may be fuzzy to partly cloudy, but it's not crystal clear. Later revelation makes it crystal clear. It doesn't change it, just tightens the focus. Seventh, though certain symbols were present, for example, the, the wood and the gold in the construction of the tabernacle. Now, how well did they understand that meant that the Messiah was going to be fully God and fully man? New Testament church, the New Testament leaders in the church in the first three centuries of the church couldn't articulate that. So I don't think they understood what that symbolized, but that doesn't mean that the symbol, uh, the symbology there is, uh, means something else. 
That's what it was intended to communicate, even though they might not have fully understood that that was a depiction of the hypostatic union. On the other hand, point eight, other symbolisms such as substitution, i.e. the lamb, were understood to some degree. They understood that the sacrificial animal was a substitute, so they understood that concept of substitutionary atonement as the priest uh, recites the sins, lays his hand on the animal. They understand what that pictures. So some things were clear, some things were less than clear. And ninth, a writer did not need to perceive the full sense of what he wrote um, of what he wrote in order to, that should not into, but that should be in order to communicate truth or a fuller sense than he himself understood at the time. See, a writer can write, and, and as Paul does when he talks about the fact that the Antichrist is not going to appear until the, now your Bible will say apostasy or falling away takes place. Now that word apostasy in Second Thessalonians 2 means a departure, and that's really a term for the rapture. And so Paul says, when he writes that, he says that, that the Antichrist isn't revealed until the departure takes place, the apostasy. Now, he may not have fully understood uh, all of the dynamics of the rapture and the significance of that word in terms of the rapture in the way that we do, because after 2,000 years of analysis, we're able to unpack these words and phrases and bring out nuances that might not have been as clear to them as they are to us. But we, we don't know that. We can't come in there and say, well, Paul wasn't sure what he was saying here. I can say that at times he may not have been, at other times he might have been, but uh, we just don't know. That's, that's, that, that's not only the progress of Revelation, but once the canon closed, that's the process that the church goes through in studying and analyzing and thinking through the data that God's given us in the Word in order to fully extrapolate from the Word all the doctrines that God has for us. And that forces us to constantly go back and dig and dig and rethink and reevaluate and exegete and analyze. And the more we learn, then all of a sudden we, we, grow, we grow in our understanding in this area and it causes us to think back, oh, what about this over here? Like, like what I talked about earlier in understanding the, the nature of the tribulation temple, starting to raise different questions and put together uh, different doctrines to try to understand how you have this, uh, how you can have a functioning temple in the middle of the tribulation that is not really an apostate temple. And Jesus refers to it as the holy place. Paul referred to it in 2 Thess 2 as the temple of God. So that terminology suggests the legitimacy of that tribulation temple. So we have to think through these things. And that doesn't mean I'll come up with all the answers when it's done. Okay, Hebrews 9.9. It, that is, these things were symbolic for the present time, the it there is a translation of the feminine pronoun, which goes back to the closest feminine noun, which is the word tabernacle uh, in Hebrews 9.8. So the writer is saying is the tabernacle was symbolic for the present time, 
word there, symbol, is the word parabole, where we get our word parable, and has the idea of it is an image or shadow pointing to a future reality. It was a symbol for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Now, get this, because I want to get all this in before I take off for Kiev next week. And then we'll come back and review it again, but at least you'll have, have these two points. First point I want you to observe here is he doesn't say, he says it was symbolic for the present time. What's the present time in which the writer of Hebrews is writing? Not just church age. What time, what's the present time in which he's writing? This is an early part of 60 to 65 A.D. Jesus has been dead for 30 years. He was crucified on the cross. The temple is still in existence in Jerusalem, and they're still offering the morning sacrifices, the evening sacrifices, the burnt offerings. They're still observing the Day of Atonement sacrifices. He doesn't say that's wrong, does he? He doesn't say it's illegitimate. He doesn't say it's apostate. Because he's got to understand this fits with what I was saying earlier, that there's this distinction between understanding the sacrifices as only depicting uh, spiritual truth from a ceremonial or ritual point and not a reality. And so he can say it was symbolic for the present time, and it's in the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered. And he doesn't say wrongly. You know, these apostate gifts and sacrifices... He just says they cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. It has a ritual value as it always did in the Old Testament, but it isn't spiritually, doesn't make him spiritually complete and it doesn't save him. So it helps us to understand that distinction and it's related only, verse 10, related only to foods and drinks, that is the things that they could eat and not eat that had to do with ceremonial uh, ritual, various washings, the cleansings, and fleshly ordinances. See, they're, they're only depicting a higher spiritual truth. They're only symbols. And that these were imposed when? Until the time of Reformation. And that word reformation is a Greek word, diathorsis, which is only used one time here, and it means improvement, reformation, or a new order. And that, from context, as we'll see, points to the death of Christ on the cross, not the millennial kingdom. So that these were legitimate up to the time of the cross. But then we have to deal with this really awkward thing for us to understand as church-age believers now, is that this whole period of time between the cross and 70 A.D. was a transition period. There is still a legitimate offer of the kingdom to the Jews that if they had turned and accepted Christ as Messiah in 40 A.D. or 50 A.D. or 60 A.D., then the kingdom would have come in. That's still Peter's message in, first, in, in Acts 2 and in Acts 3 is, is to repent and the times of refreshing will come. So there is still a legitimacy 
It's not an apostate temple, even though, well, you say the, the high priest wasn't saved, the leaders weren't saved, the priests weren't saved. Well, they weren't saved in the Old Testament either. Salvation and being spiritually right with God was never a requirement to be a high priest or a priest. You just had to be related to Levi or Aaron. And you couldn't have certain physical deformities because it wasn't what they were doing had to do with ritual and ceremony, not with real spirituality. The ritual depicted the other, but it wasn't identical with it. So that brings us up to verse 11, which was, which states, but Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That's the heavenly tabernacle called the heavenly temple in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 11, we will see in 10 and 11, I believe, I can't remember the exact chapter, the heavens open up. It's at the end of 11. Uh, the heavens open up, and you see the Ark of the Covenant in heaven, the prototype, not the one that Moses made. And then verse 12, not with the blood, he entered not with the blood of bulls and goats, because that only had temporary value, but with his own blood, that is his own death, spiritual death, qualified him to enter the most holy place in heaven once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That's that objective redemption paid for on the cross. And then the point is made in verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. See, it did something. It's a first-class condition, if and it does. If the blood of these sacrifices and sprinkling that which was unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, that is, if it had a ceremonial efficacy, how much more shall the blood of Christ, that is, the death of Christ, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's where he's going in his argument. And you'll listen to this message two or three times to pull it all together and be ready for when I come back from Kiev. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to try to get a little clearer understanding of the dynamics of our salvation and all that you've done for us. And we just pray that as we continue our study in Hebrews and uh, Revelation, Kings, that the Holy Spirit would just continue to help us to understand all these different facets of your plan and to put them together accurately and that we might realize it's not just a stimulating study of your word, but it is ultimately to challenge us to live, uh, live for you, to persevere in our spiritual life, recognizing that the decisions we make today impact our position, our privilege, our rewards, our inheritance in eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.